Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. <clears throat> Good morning. I trust you all had a blessed Thanksgiving. Um, where, where are the Eagles fans? How, how about last Monday night? Where are the Jet fans? How about the fact that you guys are the only team to beat the Eagles this year? I tried to find something positive to say about the Giants. I got nothing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Where are the Eagles fans? I, I got to cheer for the Eagles. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now forgive me for using an age-old illustration, but it comes back to this idea that those of us who love our sports, right, we, we're Eagles fans, right? Last Monday night, Eagles are down, it's late in the game, they go ahead and, and you know, they get a go-ahead score, and, we, and, and, and then the guy drops, the guy in the uh, Chiefs drops a short touchdown, and we responded like this. Is that how you respond? I think you're starting to get the point I'm trying to make. It's an age-old illustration, but it's worth repeating. We can get so excited when our favorite sports team wins the big game. <clears throat> we get so excited when our favorite sports team does well. But we come to church and we hear of the great things that God has done through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it's sort of like <coughs> we don't get the same kind of response. When your favorite sports team does well, do you, do you respond half-heartedly? No. Do you remain silent? No. <coughs> Pardon me. Chances are you jump up, you cheer, and yet if you really think about it, no matter you know, what sport it is, whatever team it is, how much is our life really changed for the good because our favorite football team won a big game? Why do we tend to respond differently <clears throat> when our favorite sports team wins a great victory than the fact that the living God has accomplished a great salvation for us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that is what you and I have the opportunity to do every Sunday morning when we gather together. Now, mainly, we do that through singing. But do we really sing? 
And if not, why not? And if we do, is it with the same kind of wholehearted enthusiasm that we have for things like sports? You see, the real big question for this morning is, why should the Christian sing enthusiastically, wholeheartedly? Today, we're finishing our series on eight different words for praise that we find in the book of Psalms. The word for today is pronounced zamer, and it is translated as a command. Sing praises. And what we're going to see as we walk through our passage this morning is this. We have reasons to sing. We have reasons to sing. Our text is Psalm 98. I invite you to turn to it on your electronic devices or on your Bible. Or in your Bible. And we're going to walk through Psalm 98. And as we do, we're going to see three reasons that the psalmist gives us to sing praise. They're not the only reasons, but there are at least three. Here's the first. God has accomplished a victorious salvation. We have reasons to sing, and the first one is that God has accomplished a victorious salvation. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The opening exhortation of this psalm is, I'm sorry, sing, sing, the opening, 49 people just went, good morning, the opening exhortation is sing, singing, singing is a unique dynamic to the Judeo-Christian tradition, did you know that? Other, other religions, they don't sing the way the Bible tells us to sing. There are 250, at least 250 references, either commands or descriptions of singing in the pages of the Bible. We sing not about a person so much, but according to this passage of Scripture, we sing to a person. Sing to the Lord. Whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters like this, That is a rendering of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. It is the name of the God who is the covenant-keeping God. That's to whom we sing. We are to sing a new song. Now, this doesn't doesn't necessarily mean new chronologically, but it means new um, qualitatively, new in quality. The quality of our singing is determined by the quality of who God is. And who he continues to be for those of us who know him through faith in Christ. And what it is that he has done. Every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is now connected to Christ. And that connection has made us something different than what we were. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So since we are new, the quality of our singing should be new, driven by the truths of the finished work of the Son of God. Those are the marvelous things that serve as the reason for our singing a new song. And the psalm describes those marvelous things in these words, his right hand 
and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have put in place. Did you know that the universe is described in the scriptures as the work of God's fingers? The moon and the stars, the work of your fingers. But yet the work described in this psalm is described as the exertion of his right hand and his holy arm. That suggests more effort, doesn't it? You see that? Oh yeah, creation, salvation, that's much more of an effort. God has achieved a great victory. The word salvation in this passage can be translated victory. The Lord of the universe has worked, and by the, exer- the exertion of his power, he has achieved eternal victory for himself, a victory all those who know Jesus can enjoy. One of the reasons that we forget this is because we get distracted by lies, particularly as elections will be approaching into the new year. Get all kinds of distractions from the media. Did you know that? So uplifting, isn't it? Hey, guys, keep this in mind over the next number of months. No president, no senator, no congressman, no official is going to save America. To the extent that we fall into the trap of thinking that anyone other than Jesus will save America, we engage in idolatry. Listen to what the living God has said. This is from Isaiah. He says, before me, no God was formed nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. The Lord has made known his salvation, the psalm continues. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God has done something marvelous. And he has achieved a victorious salvation. That truth then leads to two questions. God has done something great. He's achieved a great salvation. Well, that statement requires the answer to two questions. What did he do? And what does it mean to me? And the only way you can get the answer to those questions is if God reveals the answer. In other words, it's not just that God did this wonderful thing. He did another wonderful thing in telling us about it. He's made it known. And apart from that knowledge, you and I would be ignorant. And ignorance robs us of the blessings that are ours in Christ. That's why he gave us the Bible. So we can know what it is that God has accomplished and know him. Knowledge is key. The Bible says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You can't enjoy something you don't know you have. There was a guy named Mr. Yates. He lived in Texas during the Depression. He owned a great deal of land, and upon which he he raised sheep. It's not a bad living. Just want to make sure you're still with me. 
Now, he lived a very impoverished life, and things got worse when the depths of the Depression really took hold. And he was, got to the point where he was struggling to make the tax payments on the property. One day, a representative from an oil uh, company approached him and said, hey, can we, can we drill on your land? We have reason to believe that there may be oil under your land. Yates had nothing to lose, so he's like, yeah, go ahead. Shortly after the work began, at a very shallow depth, the largest deposit of oil ever found on the North American continent up to that time was discovered. And Yates was a billionaire overnight. Right? No. No. You see, he had always been a billionaire for as long as he lived on that land. He just didn't know it. And you cannot live the life of a billionaire if you do not know that you have those riches. God has made known the riches of what he has accomplished by the exertion of his right hand and his holy arm. And because he has made it known, you and I can enjoy the victorious salvation that is ours by his grace through the finished work of Christ. It's up to us to know that, to know what he has revealed. And that is why knowing the word of God is absolutely critical. And then we can choose to live out of that knowledge. It's the gospel that most clearly articulates and reveals God's great salvation and what it means to us. It is found in the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus. And to the extent that our lives are not built on that gospel, either because of my ignorance or rebellion, then I'm going to miss out on the life that I've been designed to live. It's that simple. The gospel tells people the bad news of what we all must know about our natural human condition from birth. Every human being is born spiritually dead, a sinner, having no relationship with the living God and destined for hell. But by means of the gospel, we know that God so loved each of us that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe on him would not, thank you, but have everlasting life. That's good news. But the gospel tells those of us who have placed our faith in Christ the bad news that we need to know, and that is we have a natural tendency to try to live life based on me. My own natural self-centeredness, the Bible calls it flesh. And God has provided the means to deal with that as well. Many of us in this room have the assurance of a destiny in heaven with God because we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, that's a salvation that cannot be taken away. You can't do anything to keep it. You can't do anything to earn it. But when we come to embrace that truth, the gospel then reveals, hey, Joe, you got a problem. And the problem is called Joe. <laughs> and Jody, guess who your problem is? It ain't me. No, it's you. That's what the Bible means by flesh, our natural tendency to be self-reliant. And God has done something through the finished work of Christ for, to be the cure for that as well. And it's found in this passage, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. That is dependence upon the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You and I can know 
that because of our connection with the living Christ in his death and resurrection, that you and I have been set free not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. We can enjoy that fact by making a simple faith-based choice to trust Christ for who he is. You've trusted him for what he did, trust him for who he is. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The first reason to sing is that God has accomplished a victorious salvation. Thank you. But here's the second reason. God's accomplished a glorious salvation. Here's the second reason. God is king. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs. Sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and with the sound of a horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Today's word is found twice in this passage. Can you see the two words that, that are our Hebrew word, zamer? Want to take a shot at it? What two words do you think are our Hebrew word? No, not Lord. Sing praise. Sing praises. That's a command. Sing praise. It appears twice at the end of verse 4 and at the beginning of verse 5. And it appears 35 times in the New American Standard Bible. 35 times this word appears as a command. John Wesley said, Sing lustfully and with good courage. Because of, excuse me, beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor ashamed of it being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Ouch. You know, I know people who sang their, not the, well, I don't, I don't want to, I want to be careful here. Let's just put it to you this way. I don't listen to some of the stuff I used to listen to. Y'all tracking? And I used to sing that stuff lustfully. Uh, you know what? It's much better to sing and I ran out of that grave. Now you may think that your singing is not particularly pleasant to those around you, but they are not the audience. He is. And he loves when his people, redeemed through the finished work and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, sing a song of praise to him. They used to, there was an old uh, Christian group called Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and they did a song called His Favorite Song of All is the Song of the Redeemed. God loves it when we sing. The command to sing praises is linked to a joyful noise. See it? Right? Make a joyful noise. Sing praises. If we're honest, you and I can fall into the trap of coming to church and for any number of reasons, the music is playing and we don't really make a joyful anything. You know, it's more like a disdainful groan. Now, why does that happen? Well, in case you haven't noticed, sometimes we like things our way, you know? We may not be crazy about the particular song or the particular way it's being presented, but that's not the issue. The Lord tells us to sing praises because of who he is and what he has done. It's not dependent on my preferences. I'm a classical music guy. When was the last time you heard a symphony up here? Our singing is to be accompanied by instruments. 
In David's time, they used things like a lyre. A lyre was basically like a harp or a guitar. They even had electric lyres. Think about it. Trumpets, horns, cymbals. It got loud, folks. As a matter of fact, in the book of Ezra, when, the, uh, when they, they, they're rejoicing over the fact that they're reading the book of the law, the scripture says that the, the sound was heard from a great distance. And they didn't even have amplifiers. I know some of you are thinking, praise God. I know, don't go there. You see, the key is to be, it, for it to be done with joy. Why? Why joy? Because the God who has accomplished a victorious salvation is our king. See what he says? Make a joyful noise before the king, Yahweh. And because he's king, you know what that means? He rules. He's sovereign. He's in control. And that's profoundly helpful when we get distracted by a world that's upside down crazy. Isn't it good to know that as nutso as that seems, that he's got it? That's critical to remember. Remember who our God is. Remember what he has done. He's accomplished a victorious salvation, and he is our king. And the third reason to sing praises is that God will judge. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We've seen this pattern over the course of our study these weeks of expanding praise. It, it begins with God's covenant people. It moves on to uh, embrace all people. And then it expands even out to all of creation. And in this psalm, all creation is exhorted to respond appropriately to who God is. But this psalm gives a particular reason for that response. The God who has accomplished a great salvation, the God who is our king, is the God who is coming to judge. The New Living Translation translates verse 9 like this. The Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. Now, be honest with yourself. Have you ever, maybe every once in a while when things don't go the way you want, might be tempted to feel like God's not fair? You ever have that? God's not fair. I am so glad that God will not deal with me based on his fairness. You know why I'm glad? Because if God were to deal with me based on his fairness, it means that I would get what I deserved. He has dealt and will deal with his people in mercy and grace. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. And grace means you get what you could never deserve. And that's good news. As his people, we await a time when the Lord Jesus will come and deal with the godless world system that we look at and just shake our heads. And he will conquer Satan once and for all. We have an innate sense of justice. We have a sense of wanting to see that, to see the justice 
perpetrated upon those who reject God and his ways. And, as, and if that sounds harsh to you, consider what the Apostle Paul says to the suffering Thessalonians in his second letter. Here's what he wrote. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity there is a day of reckoning coming and we should zamer sing praises because our god will come and by means of his fair and righteous judgment he will set right every wrong ever committed there will be justice and that fact is the third reason for us to sing praises knowing that he will judge the things and people that have made this world crazy and upside down, it comforts us. It comforts us to know that everything wrong will be set right. We have an innate sense of that, the need for that. And that's the stuff that is most effective in hindering our praise. It's our circumstances in a crazy, fallen world. But they do not need to distract us from who our God is, from what he has done and what he has promised to do. We have reasons to sing. God has accomplished the victorious salvation. God is king. God will judge. Do you hear the three, sense, uh, the three references to tense there? Past, right? He has accomplished. Present, he is king. Future, he will judge. Who he is, what he has accomplished, what he has promised. Guys, that's the current that powers our praise. It's like electricity. You know, in electronics, there's something that inhibits the flow of electricity. It's called a resistor. It simply stems the flow of the power. So here's my question. What's the resistor that stems your flow of your songs of praise? I don't know about you, but one thing I have taken away from this series on these eight words for praise is that it's, 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 it's way too easy for me to focus on the wrong thing or the wrong place. It's just so easy to keep my eyes on things below when the scripture says, set your mind on things above, the eternal where Christ is. Our praise is inhibited when we focus on the world and on our circumstances. Guys, it's so easy to just keep the dreadful feed of the so-called news droning on and on and on, all the while getting more distracted from the truths of the marvelous things that God has accomplished, from what it means to really be in Christ, things like salvation, victory, the provision of the living Christ in me to face all the stuff that I can't deal with anyway. Our circumstances get in the way because they're not always exactly what we'd like them to be, are they? I want you to do something in the next 24 to 48 hours. I want you to take 10 minutes and read the 56 verses of the book of Habakkuk. 
I want, I want to use what happens in the book of Habakkuk to illustrate this idea of how our circumstances get in the way. And when you do, I want you to look at two passages of Scripture in particular. Habakkuk begins his book by doing exactly what I tend to do, looking at the world around him and getting discouraged. See if you can relate to his words. He wrote this, How long, O Lord, have you been there? How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Have you ever felt like, hello, where are you? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. What, do you have any idea how long ago this was written? Right? It sounds like it could have been written when? Yesterday. Could you imagine how he would have felt if he had 24-7 news or social media? This dude is not a happy dude. He is not happy. Why? Is he looking around at something that isn't real? Is, is this all a fantasy? No, he's looking at what's really going on. It's real. Just as what we see going on around us is real. Violence, mass shootings, war in Eastern Europe, war in Israel. People celebrate. There are human beings who celebrate the beheading of children in the name of their God. And you and I look at this and go, evil deeds? You want an evil deed? How about a government-sponsored indoctrination of children against the moral values that our culture has maintained for many generations now can be discarded in the name of love? If you decide you're a different gender than what's on your birth certificate, then that's who you are. We even have professionals adding to their signatures what their preferred pronouns are. We look at this, and like Habakkuk, we can easily get so discouraged. Where does it get you? We're just looking at that stuff. How much do you have the news on, gang? How much of that are you going to take? What's that going to bring you? Anger, discouragement, depression, anxiety? Sign me up, right? That stuff leads to things like addiction, destroyed homes, and even suicide. Do you really want to look at that that much? That's where Habakkuk is. That's where he is. He's looking at the world around him and he's going, ugh. Now look at where he ends just two chapters later. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fa fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Wait, wait, wait hold it. How'd you get there, bro? How did you get there? This is a 180. This is a total 180 inside of three chapters. The words that are here describe what in that culture would be absolute devastation. Everything is gone. The worst of all circumstances. And then he writes, and I will rejoice in the Lord and joy, exult 
and the God of my salvation. You see, Habakkuk made a choice. He made a choice about where he will look and who will determine his life. How do you get there? How do you go from one place to the other? You know, during our times of praise and worship, I watch you. People are going to be freaked out now. Is he looking at me? Look, look spiritual. The pastor's watching. I find myself looking at some of you guys. And when I do, I'm profoundly affected by those of you whose stories I know. You know why? Because I watch you praising God, expressing your love and trust in him, despite having experienced your own taste of what Habakkuk describes in these verses. Your own taste of devastation. The father or mother raising their children alone because they've experienced an unjust and painful divorce. The man or woman who comes home every night to a house that's empty of any human beings. The family who has a loved one struggling with addiction. The family who's lost a child to addiction. The family dealing with cancer or the dramatic after effects of cancer. There's a family in our midst that recently lost a mom and a daughter inside of 14 days. And there you stand with uplifted hand singing praise to God. Unlike the soccer player who I read about in the news recently who is reported to have saying that because she experienced an injury in her last soccer game, it proves to her that there is no God. Narcissist. How is it that these fellow Bayside's can do what they do during a time of worship in light of what they've experienced? Habakkuk gives the answer in a verse that's in the middle of his book. It explains how this transformation took place for him and how it takes place for us. It's found in the second chapter. It simply says, and the righteous person shall live by faith. You see, faith is deciding that the living God and his truth determines me more than the reality of the circumstances I have experienced or find myself in. We can choose, as my favorite author would like to say, to, come, to become delightfully detached from the pressure of circumstance so that it ceases to be the criteria upon which I determine my life, what I think and what I do. We do not need to understand the why of everything that goes on. All we really need to know is him. So when you and I remember who he is, when we forget not all his benefits, when we remember the marvelous things he's accomplished in Christ that give us a victorious salvation, when we set our mind on things above, when we truly embrace the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for me so he could give his life to me so that he might, by my trust in him, live his life through me as me. How can I keep from singing? You know what's interesting about the end of the book of Habakkuk? Look at this last verse. This is the last verse of Habakkuk. Check it out. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. It seems as if the third chapter, the last chapter, one-third of the book of Habakkuk, was designed to be set to music. It's a song. It's a song. You know, there's something about singing. It, it, it's an interesting dynamic. You ever try to remember the lyrics of a song? 
You know, like you're going to remember, you know, eight days a week by the Beatles. Right now, a third of my audience went, who are the Beatles? Right? And so, you know, what do you start doing when you try to remember the words of a song? You start to what? You start singing, oh, I need you. There's something about singing that affects your brain in such a way that it just goes deeper. It affects you more. That's why singing to God, it's like a whole person response, singing his truth. So what keeps you from lifting your voice, from obeying the command, zamer, sing praises? Why should we? Because the God of this universe has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Why should we? Because he is our king, the loving, sovereign Lord of the universe, and he's in control despite any indication to the contrary. Zamer, church. Why? Because the king is coming, and he will set everything right. There's a very famous hymn that's based on this psalm, and you'll be hearing it a few times over the next few weeks because it's a Christmas carol. But if you really listen closely to the words, it's really not all that Christmassy. Part of it goes like this. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. We're going to sing a version of that song that we like to do here at Bayside. And it includes the command for each of us to sing, sing, sing with joy. When we remember the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sin and made it possible for us to be so connected to him that he can live his life through us, how can we keep from singing?